It has been theorized that our universe can be divided up into about two trillion galaxies. And with that much space to consider, many are left wondering if life might exist on other planets. For the Christian, this shouldn't be too hard to conceive of. After all, we believe in a God who loves to create and who has already created life outside of our planet, such as angels. So with this in mind, could life exist on other planets? Perhaps. But even if we were capable of fully answering that question, we'd still be left with the bigger philosophical question. Why? Why would life exist? Why do we exist? The first answer to that question is fairly simple. We exist because God wants us to. We are because God loves. From a Christian perspective, intelligent life is intentional life, for all creation comes from God. We are not the product of mere happenstance or divine accident. We exist out of God's desire. Though he saw the evils we were capable of, he still decided that life was better with us than without us. And so the community that is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, extended life to a new community of earthlings in their various forms. This loving view of God is vastly different from the worldview painted by the false gods. For the stories the false gods spun to their followers were stories in which humans were, more or less, slaves. Created by the gods to do their bidding. As Bible scholar John Walton notes, Gods were believed to have needs for food, drink, clothing, and housing. People have been created with the explicit purpose of providing for these needs. At the same time, when the gods were properly provided for, they would in turn provide care and protection for the people. The symbiosis between humans and gods provides the parameters for the Mesopotamian religious system. Religious obligation was defined by the rituals that were performed to meet the needs of the gods. Uh, the understanding of the gods was construed in terms of their provision and protection. People were only required to be ethical because ethical behavior brought order to the world, not because the gods were ethical. Gods were not imitated or morally elevated. They were authority figures who demanded attention and offered benefits. This was a symbiotic relationship between humans and the false gods. Humans served the gods as the gods saw fit, and the gods would take care of them in return. This is already a drastically different story than that of the ethical god of the Bible who made us because of his love. A love seen tangibly when that same God decided to make himself a lowly human being named Jesus in order to serve, restore, rescue, and love not only his friends, but also his enemies. A God willing to die for us just to make that kind of radical love clear. This kind of love flies in the faces of the false gods and, and makes the God of the Bible pop with color and beauty incomparable and unimaginable. A God who becomes human to save humans? 
A God who is willing to die for us even though he doesn't need us alive in order to sustain him? Now that is a loving God. But this is where many Bible teachers stop in answering the question of why do we exist? We're painted a picture of a loving creator with a big heart, but left with little vision as to what we are to do with our lives. We came from love, we live in love, and we go to love. The end. While this teaching is all well and good since God is love, and the most important commandments are to love God and neighbor, existing simply to love feels a bit abstract when it comes to a vision statement. Have we really no firmer idea as to why we're here other than to love and be loved? Actually, we do. And that vision statement is right where any good organization expects to find it listed, right at the beginning of their documents. In this case, the creation story of the Bible. We moderns tend to think that the people of Bible times were idiotic enough to think that they could create their own gods by melting a bunch of gold together and bowing down before it. But this kind of thinking makes no sense for people of any time. If ancient people thought they were slaves to the gods, how could they build a god? Wouldn't that make them superior to the god they had just created? Uh, Furthermore, who in their right mind would look at a statue and decide to give their lives to serving it? Well, they're ancient people, we might say. Uh, That's just the way they thought back then. But that logic continues to fall flat. Especially when we look at the Israelites, whose chief sin throughout the ages was to turn away from the one true God and go on to serve the false gods over and over and over again. Uh, They watched their God save them by sending plagues on their captors. He split the sea for them to walk through. He guided them through the wilderness as a pillar of fire. They saw God tangibly in front of them in these ways and many more. So how on earth... Could they be so stupid to worship a golden statue that they themselves had built? My question fits given my perspective of such statues. However, this was not the perspective of ancient-minded people. After building such a statue, certain rituals would be performed in attempts to install a divine essence of sorts into the object. The statue was to become something like a storage locker for a spiritual entity to be found in. An anchor that brought the deity out of heaven and to the earth. These physical statues were thought to be physical bodies that had taken on a spiritual state of sorts. Though this did not restrict the spiritual being to the statue, as Gay Robbins points out, The non-corporeal essence of a deity was unlimited by time and space and and could manifest in all its bodies, in all locations, all at one time. Likewise, destroying one of these statues did not destroy the being inside. It simply destroyed the object it was thought to be held in. This is a very different kind of thinking than ours. To us, these statues are nothing more than gold and the like, and, and we think that ancient people thought that way too. But to the ancients, such statues were representative of the deity itself. When you gazed upon the statue, you were gazing upon, not the god per se, but a physical representation of it. 
and this physical representation was typically placed within the temple of the deity. While there are many different Hebrew words for these different kinds of statues, the one we're going to focus on is the word selim, which shows up about 15 times throughout the Old Testament. While many Bible translations will sometimes translate this word as idol, some translations like the ESV opt to always translate selim as image. This is a fine translation because what is a statue but an image of something? But that word image should grab our attention, for the false gods were not the only ones with images. The one true God had his own images, and they are not statues. They are human beings. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. So, before we get into heresy, let's get a few things straight. <laughs> One, humans are not God. Two, you are not to be worshipped. And three, you are not a living embodiment of God. When God refers to humanity as his Salem, he does not mean to imply these things. Rather, just as a Salem statue image of a false god serves as a representation of the false god, so the Salem slash human slash image of the one true God serves as a representation of him. Just as the temples of the false gods had their Salems, so the temple of Eden had its own as well. They went by the name of Adam and Eve. And those two went on to give birth to descendants also made in God's image. This speaks volumes to our questions why are we here? Why do we exist? What's our purpose in life? The answer is not only love in the abstract, but also to image in the actual. All earthly life exists because of love, but only one type of earthly life exists because of image. Only humanity is able to represent God on this planet. They have an ability and capacity that all other forms of life on earth do not have. They serve as a physical echo of their spiritual creator. And they look to mirror him with their actions, words, and everyday decisions. With this identity, all avenues of our work and lives become sacred, for we are able to represent God in everything we do. As Michael Heiser points out, all human endeavor and enterprise has spiritual meaning. Work is a spiritual exercise. Vocation is worship, no matter how mundane. Any task performed to steward creation, to harness its power for God's glory and the benefit of fellow imagers, and to foster in the harmonious productivity of fellow imagers, is imaging God. And so ideally, we should all be catching glimpses of who God is in each other's lives. For to gaze upon another human being is to gaze upon a representation of God. Of course, we won't always see God very well in others. With sin in the world, God's image in humanity has been tainted in countless ways. 
So for now, we can only look to Jesus to see the perfect image of God. Though fortunately, that is an image that Christians are being conformed to, and one day we'll inherit completely. But even though our current image is tainted, the image is still upon us as God's people. And it's not just upon us as God's people, but it's upon all of humanity, even those who don't recognize and worship God. For to be human is to be Salem. To be born of man and woman is to be born with the purpose of representing God. His desire is to have physical imagers fill the earth until the whole planet looks as he would have it look. He doesn't want us to subdue the earth in the sense that we are to destroy it, but to subdue it in the sense that we are to further mold it into his likeness. He doesn't want us to rule over creation in the sense that we can exert our every desire over it, but to rule over it in the sense that we treat our planet as God would. This is the mission of all God's Salem's, whether we accept that mission or not. We are to continue to fill the earth with God's image however we can. We are to give birth to imagers who give birth to imagers who give birth to imagers until the whole planet is filled with his image. We are to raise them up as proper imagers who seek to image God like we do. This is grounded in his repetitive call to be fruitful and multiply. Though Jesus calls us to continue making imagers in another way as well, while we can continue to give birth to and raise up proper imagers, he has also sent us on mission to go out and reach the broken images already in the world. Rather than leave fallen imagers with their false gods, Jesus commands us to turn them back to the one true God, which, of course, will add God's love and representation to the world exponentially. As we Christians live out the image that the Holy Spirit empowers us to live out, the world will be transformed. It will affect the way we treat our families, friends, and enemies, our pets and our livestock, the, the earth and the oceans, how we do our job and, and what kind of jobs we do, what we consume and what we fast from. All of these things and much, much more will begin to overflow with the representation of a loving God who has installed mission into our very DNA. This is the call upon humanity. We are not to build Salem's of God because he already has one, you. And unlike the petty Salem's of the false gods, the one true God's Salem's are living and breathing and moving entities crafted by his own spirit to do his work. You are not pointless. You are not a happy accident. You are not purposeless. You are not powerless. You are not just sifting through this life and hoping to live happily ever after. You are born on mission. You live on mission, and you die on mission. And as a Christian, you will one day inherit the fullness of that completed mission when the new heaven and new earth come to fruition. Now it's important to note that all of this image talk goes for both men and women, though the creation story is often used to make women feel subhuman and subservient. 
Many act as though men were put here to do the real work of carrying out God's purposes in the world, while women were put here to take care of men while they do it. This misunderstanding comes about because the creation story identifies Eve as a helper fit for Adam. But it should be noted that Ezer, the Hebrew word for helper, does not mean inferior or subordinate. After all, God is often called an Ezer in relation to Israel, and God was not inferior or subordinate to his people. While men and women are certainly crafted in different ways, their differences fulfill one another. Eve fills in the pieces of imaging that God found lacking in Adam alone. Indeed, Adam would have no way to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with imagers without her. She is in no way lesser than Adam, and she was not created to be his servant. She is a fellow imager and helper, a Salem and Ezer, meant to rule the world alongside him and represent God in all of her actions. And the differences that she has in her femininity further echo and represent God in a way that Adam could never echo and represent by himself. She is Adam's completion, seen in the very fact that she carries his missing rib. He can have it back by becoming one flesh with her and in doing so, complete that which is missing in him. A more complete image of God is made manifest in their togetherness. Both Jesus and Paul will go on to call women back to their place as imagers in the world, causing them to clash harshly with the culture around them, which treated and viewed them as subordinates. When Mary sat at Jesus' feet to learn from his teaching like the other men did, Martha was angry that she had to serve everyone alone. What was Jesus' reply to Martha's anger? Mary has chosen the good portion. Mary was a helper in the imager sense, not in the housemaid sense. Martha was welcome to join too. Likewise, when Jesus rose from the dead, all four Gospels account to the fact that Jesus entrusted the news of his resurrection to women. Yes, Jesus intentionally told the greatest news in history to women first. And then he sent his bold female disciples from his tomb to go tell his scared male disciples who were hiding elsewhere. This move would have struck the people of Jesus' time as madness. In their culture, women weren't trusted with such important news. I'm sure Jesus was aware of how this would be perceived, and that's why his actions are all the more empowering and subversive. He is elevating women in ministry. He is reminding the world that women are the image too. He is showing them that representing God is not the man's job alone, but the joint effort of male and female imagers working in unison. As Walter Wink says, Jesus treated women as he did, not because he was gallant or nice, but because the restoration of women to their full humanity and partnership with men is integral to the coming of God's egalitarian order. And Paul will further communicate this, despite his many famous uncontextualized and isolated comments about women that seem to say otherwise. Not only does Paul tell us that women can prophesy, which entails them to leadership positions within the church, but his letters show us that he worked alongside women in ministry all over the place. He mentions that Yudia and Sinchi labored side by side with him in the gospel together, and that Mary worked hard for those at the Roman church. 
He calls Tryphania and Tryphosa workers in the Lord and writes two verses about Phoebe, a deacon of the church and a patron of many and of myself. There's also Priscilla, who is mentioned six times throughout Paul's letters, and Junia, a fellow prisoner and apostle. As Craig Keener notes, the percentage of women colleagues Paul acknowledges is amazing by any ancient standards. Whether male or female, we are all imagers. And the modern church needs us to live like it, for a church that is male in gender does not image God properly. It cannot. For it lacks the fuller image of God which is seen when men and women rule together and do the work that they are both called to do. The church must be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with God's image just as he commanded and men are simply incapable of doing that alone, both spiritually and physically. When we get this thinking into our bones, something wonderful happens in the church. Women no longer have to act like men in order to feel like they can fit into the roles God has called them to. Instead, they can live as the image of God in the way that they were designed to. They can become an ezer without sacrificing their gender or personhood. Then, a woman can do what she was made to do, rule the earth alongside her male counterpart by the divine decree of God and the mission infused into her very DNA. In order to further understand the importance of our call to represent God in the world, we need to recognize the fact that we're not the only imagers God has created. This is also communicated in the opening pages of the Bible, where God makes the statement, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Who is God talking to here? (laughs) Who is the us and the our? What else is in the likeness of God? The standard Christian answer is that this us is referring to the Trinity, that God is talking to himself. He looks to Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and the three of them decide to go create man in their image. While this makes sense from a Christian viewpoint, our Trinitarian perspective was centuries away from the writing of Genesis 1, and is therefore not in mind. However. The Bible writers of the time did believe that other spiritual beings existed before humanity existed, so those beings could fit the bill. Job, for example, waxed poetic about how the sons of God, that is, upper-level spiritual beings, shouted for joy as God created the foundations of the world. They were already present before humanity was, so it makes sense that these spiritual beings are the us that Genesis is referring to. But the reason most of us don't consider this us to be these beings is because God seems to be inviting them to create with him. And that, of course, is heresy. There is only one creator, and he is the only one true God. Other spiritual beings can't create like he does. But the idea that God is inviting these beings to do the actual creating with him is a misunderstanding of the grammar here. As Heiser clarifies, it's like me going into a room of friends and saying, hey, let's go get some pizza. I'm the one speaking. A group is hearing what I say. Similarly, God comes to the divine council with an exciting announcement. Let's create humankind. 
But if God is speaking to his divine counsel here, does that suggest that humankind was created by more than one Elohim? That is, a God. Was the creation of humankind a group project? Not at all. Back to my pizza illustration. If I am the one paying for the pizza, making the plan happen after announcing it, then I retain both the inspiration and the initiative for the entire project. That's how Genesis 1.26 works. The fact that only God does the creating is further seen in the very next verse where only God goes on to create man in his image. The idea was shared, but the creation was God's alone. But what does any of this have to do with our conversation on image? It's the fact that we now know that humanity is not the only image of God in existence. Yes, we are the only imagers on earth, but the heavens have their own imagers. As made clear when God refers to their likeness as our likeness. They too were made in his image. The Bible shows us that God has raised up both spiritual and physical imagers, each representing God in their particular spheres of impact and lines of work. And for that reason, it wouldn't surprise me to find out that if God has created life on other planets, perhaps the same vision and mission of Earth could be found among them as well. They might have their own imager or imagers created to represent God across their planet. For why would God only want the earth and heavens to be filled with his representation? Why not fill the whole universe with his representation and in doing so bring all creation more deeply into echoing his love? Though, of course, whether this is the case or not, we can only speculate. But a few things should now be concrete to us if they weren't before. We exist because of love. And we live with a purpose. As a human being, you are, by very definition, a Salem. An image of God. <laughs>